0: Hey everyone, it's Tom. Just after we put the finishing touches on this week's show, we learned about the passing of Michael Nesmith of the Monkees, and it reminded me that we had prepared a Monkees segment a number of months ago but hadn't run it yet. And it's an interview with Peter Tork from about 1989, and it is exceptional. So if you're a big fan of the Monkees or just want to hear a great discussion of the music and spirit of the 1960s, have a listen to that interview following the closing credits of this show. Plus, Christopher will share his thoughts about Michael Nesmith and his extraordinary career.
1: Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews in the archives, listen to them, and bring the very best bits to you, courtesy of
0: my co host, Tom Jokic. I'm Christopher Ward. This is our show. So, Christopher, you have found yourself in a lot of incredible situations in your VJ career, in your songwriting career, in your career as a musician. So, Professionally speaking, when did you find yourself in a situation that you never, ever dreamed possible?
1: There are probably a few, but (laughs) there's one that happened recently that is easy to pull out of the memory bank. Sure. Um, Mike Myers asked me if I wanted to go see a Neil Finn show uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, he said but Neil wants me to do a song. And I said, oh, that's great. I said, what, what song are you gonna do? He said, well, I was thinking of doing BBC, the song that we did in the first Austin Powers movie.
0: Right, and, and you're in that scene.
1: Yeah, I'm in oh, the wow. scene. And so uh, I said, well, that's a, that's a great idea, Mike. And he said, but I'm only doing it if you come on with me. And I'm like, what? Because <laughs> I hadn't played on stage for a long, long time. So I found myself later that day, and we had about five minutes to rehearse. Oh. Luckily, we did have a rehearsal. <laughs> So, and I had to teach Neil Finn and his band <laughs> with, along with Mike, how to play BBC. And I just remember looking across the stage and I see Neil sort of peering at me, like following the, the, the chord changes are like pretty simple, right. to be sure. But there was just something very sort of out of body yes. experience about that whole moment.
0: Where you're teaching Neil Finn from Crowded House and then most recently Fleetwood Mac how to play a song. That's great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's that's it and by the way we, we we had a great chat afterwards, and he had just gotten the call from Mick Fleetwood. Wow, and he said how amazed he was that that had just happened
0: yeah, yeah, that's great um I think for me it would be flying down to Miami with Marilyn Dennis to interview the bGs we've talked about that right, you can yeah. find that in our archives um chatting with Don Henley in l a that was great my Alanis chat um Keith Urban visited us on The Morning Show a number of times, and he was always great. The very first time he performed Stupid Boy, which is one of my favorite songs by him. And he also came in, and I wrote something called the Keith Urban Dictionary, okay? (laughs) And so he had to read these terms from Australia and New Zealand. He grew up in both places. Right. And we had our hosts, Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis, had to guess what the words meant. But just him doing some of my work on the air is just like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, that's Keith Urban. And he was always great when he came on. And he was a great performer. He was great with the fans. And so that's a, that's a huge one. And, and every once in a while, artists like there's a, there was a band called DNCE with Joe Jonas as the lead singer. Oh, yeah. This was after Jonas Brothers and before he returned to the Jonas Brothers. They were down in Barbados with us, because we brought a band down to Barbados with us, um, for with our audience. And they did a they did another contest that I had written. And so it's just so cool when they do something that you've worked on. And Eugene Levy did the same thing. I wrote like a kind of a fake movie script, and he did it. And oh, wow. I, like he wanted it the day before, but he hadn't received it. I'm going, oh my God, is he going to like it? Is it going to be okay? Ooh. He did it cold. Christopher. Really? He did not look it over. He did it cold. Oh, man. And it was brilliant. It was hilarious. And Eugene was great. Oh, he um, is amazing. And one more. Burton Cummings came into the studio with his keyboard and played songs for like 25 minutes. Just him and his keyboard, and he had not lost a step. And I think that was like 2004. So it was, you know, well after... Um, you know, the days in the guess who, and even his solo heyday. Yeah.
2: And, great, great uh, and he player. was
0: funny and playful. And you know, you're just looking around, you're going, that's Burton Cummings. He's three feet away from me being jovial. And of course, no episode of famous lost words would be complete without at least one mention of Burton. Cummings. So there it is. <laughs> oh,
1: I, I thought, I just realized I remembered another one. Yeah. This is one that no one will ever hear.
0: Okay. <laughs> what?
1: We were in the studio working with Alana and she arrived to the studio with Robert Plant. And we were recording a song called Our World, Our Times. And it had a kind of a quasi-spoken part in it. Yeah. And we processed Alana's vocal down, so it was in a kind of a male register for the yeah. spoken part. Yeah. But when Robert got there, he said, I want to do that part. And we were like, uh, yeah, sure, sure, hold, yeah, okay. hold on. So we got him set up in the, in the, in the vocal booth. And he's, we're hearing him read down the lyric. And I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. <laughs> This is accidental, but this is really cool. And unfortunately, there was a technical problem with the board, and we never could get the vocal recorded. We tried every which way. At one point, Robert had taken the board and was lifting it up, because you can do that, and looking underneath to see if there were connections that hadn't been done properly. <laughs> I thought, this is just too crazy. But uh, it, does, it exists only in uh, the collective memory of four or five people.
0: That's great. By the way, I just want to let you know that in a few episodes, on episode 100, because our 100th episode is coming up very soon, we're going to feature our favorite stories ever. Stories that have previously run on the show, but also some new stories that I'm digging up for this very purpose, and you and I are going to think of some some other stories that have happened to us. But I guarantee you on that episode, (laughs) there's going to be the Robert Plant story, and that's the one where Robert, Alana Miles, Christopher Ward, and Mike Myers are at Wolfgang Pucks in L.A., and the story is hilarious because, best of all, Don Rickles makes an appearance. (laughs) So you can find that in the archives for sure, but we also have it coming up in just a few weeks. Okay, I better review the details. (laughs) (laughs) That's coming up in our next episode. But this week, we have a great collection of interviews. First up is a new interview with Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran, as he talks about their new album, as well as the deep history of that band, from being banned by MTV to being influenced by David Bowie just a few years before they became friends with Bowie. This interview is from 2021 from the Marilyn Dennis Collection. (laughs) Also coming up is a mid-90s chat with the amazing Bonnie Raitt. This is a really interesting interview because it's Bonnie at the top of her game, and while she is genuinely grateful for her recent success, she is clearly unimpressed and even uninspired by fame. And someone whose career has spanned decades, but she is terribly overlooked, is the wonderful Shaka Khan. She started out with the band Rufus in the 70s and had some massive solo hits in the 80s and really branched out after that. And Christopher, you and I will talk about the incredible Shaka Khan performance that we both saw on the same night at least a decade before you and I met. First, let's travel to Rio with Duran Duran. 1982. That's Rio by Duran Duran. Tom, Duran Duran
1: established themselves in the video era like no other band. They were stylish, ridiculously good-looking, and as an added bonus, they had killer songs. Now, it's probably the latter that has seen them last for almost 40 years. At much They worked the medium seemingly effortlessly with these supercharged live appearances that led to massive crowds in the streets surrounding the station. And they were funny, charming, and cunning. Ask Erica M. about a cake and water pistol fight, (laughs) if you want more details. (laughs) In these clips from her podcast and TV show, Marilyn Dennis talks to Nick Rhodes of the band and, as usual, covers so many fascinating aspects of their success, from favorite songs to fashion to what keeps them together after all these years. Nick starts by talking about a milestone
3: they never thought of reaching.
4: 15th studio album. Now, what do you make (laughs) of that?
3: Uh, it's it's a lot of records because they do take quite a quite a while to make. Um, I, I'm I'm very proud of them. Uh, look, I, I think when we started out, we didn't think further than a month or two ahead at the most, and so to be here four decades later, still being able to do the things that we all like, still being able to make contemporary music together. Uh, still having an audience that have been incredibly loyal to us, um, and they're the ones that have kept us around. Uh, we're we're very grateful, and um, we always just try to put out the best stuff we possibly can.
4: And you always do. And we, you know, I want to tell you while we were waiting to talk to you, Nick, we were listening to some great Duran Duran tunes, and I went, "Oh, that's my favorite." No, no. Well, that's my favorite. No, no. That's my favorite. Two things came to mind. Do you have a favorite, which I know is hard to choose, and I want to talk to you about uh, going on tour. What, what are the, what's the thought on that?
3: Um, well, we do have quite a lot of favorites. I'm glad you have more than one favorite too. But it, it varies from night to night. You know, there are some songs that, when you play them live, um, you can't help but smile because you see the reaction that the audience have, and you realise that it's lifting people's spirits, and so. I'm fond of those songs for that reason. Um, And then, of course, it's all the new songs, because whatever you've just done is fresh and exciting, and and we can't wait to get out and actually play those live.
0: Oh, I love how excited a band gets about their new material. As for their tour, by the way, it looks like they will not be hitting the road until June of 2022.
1: Right. All right, Tom, let's talk about Boys on Film. (laughs) Nick discusses video making.
4: (laughs) Okay, so many firsts with the band, okay? You're one of the first bands to shoot your videos on film.
3: Yes. Our very first video, Planet Earth, was actually made on video, but uh, we quickly graduated to film and we were at 35 millimetre before you could click your fingers. Uh, <laughs> at that time, uh, everybody wanted to make the best looking things you possibly could. And there were budgets available too. Um, of course, we were probably still paying the bills for those budgets, but... Um, but it was fun to make them, and it was an open book then. You could really do whatever you wanted with video because first time we went to Sri Lanka to make the videos for some of the Rio album. Yeah, no one had ever really been on location like that before and, and right. made music videos. So it seemed incredibly new and innovative. It was actually just a, quite a simple idea.
4: Uh, first group to have a video banned by MTV, Girls on Film. That's a first. <laughs>
3: Yes, yeah, so I, I think um, <laughs> we knew that one was probably not going to be played everywhere. Uh, it was originally made for those sort of nightclubs in the 1980s that um, yeah. there were sort of dance clubs and they had video screens above the dance floor. And we liked the idea of them being able to play our 12-inch record and to sync it to the video. Uh-huh. And so we allowed ourselves to make slightly more explicit content than um, <laughs> would have ever been shown on MTV.
4: That's true. That's true. You are the first Bond theme that went to number one. Well,
3: that's one we're very proud of. And and um, strangely, we, I think we still hold the record for the Bond theme uh, in America and the UK and, and, and around the rest of the world. Canada, of course.
0: Oh yeah, and Canada has always been a great home for Duran Duran. They hit here even before they hit the American market. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. More with Duran Duran coming up, including the immense influence of David Bowie. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. As we continue with our segment about Duran Duran, Christopher, let's keep going.
1: All right, here's something that's uh, after my own heart. The joy of hearing yourself on the radio.
0: Uh, I have to go back
4: in, in time with you, Nick. Where were you when you first heard a Duran Duran song on the radio?
3: We were in London. Okay. Um, we were making, We were finishing our first album. And the song Planet Earth, that was our first single, was played on Radio 1 for the first time. It was like a very strange dream for us, because I was, I think at the time I was 18, and... uh, we we've been watching Top of the Pops and listening to Radio One as kids, and been big fans of a lot of other artists, uh, people like David Bowie and Roxy oh. Music and uh, Sparks and a lot of uh, dance music, um, Giorgio Moroder, Donna oh, Summers, yeah. I Feel Love. Yeah. And suddenly we were on the radio, being played alongside these things. Uh, that moment will I think stick with all the band members forever. You. you it's 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 something so special that that you of course you're going to remember.
0: You know, Christopher. Over the years, I've witnessed a number of artists listening to their new song on the radio for the first time, and it, honestly, it doesn't matter if they are new to the game or a veteran; they still get a real thrill hearing it. It's it's very. It's really illuminating, and it brings out kind of their childlike excitement. Yeah. And you realize that they never get tired of hearing it for the first time.
1: I think you're absolutely right, because it kind of confirms a connection with your audience, and it makes it real in yeah. a tangible, in a really tangible way uh, that's, you know, this kind of just in your, in your dreams until then. Yeah. Here, Marilyn asks about the look of the band.
4: The fashion and the, uh, the, the overall look it was that driven by you uh, because you were always so well put together, Nick? And so, you know, there's that extra thing that you have. Would you say that? Because you're kind of called the controller a little bit. Tell uh, me. Uh,
3: me? To say, <laughs> but, but it's, uh, of course, I care about um, aesthetics generally. Uh, when when we formed the band, we we come up through the 1970s where, you had artists like David Bowie and Roxy Music yeah. who, who were very image conscious. But then we also had punk rock, which was um, an amazingly stylish movement. I think a lot of people think it was anti-style. But in fact, at the very head of it were Vivian Westwood, the designer, and her partner yeah. um, Malcolm McLaren at the yes. time, who managed the Sex Pistols. And really everything about it was new and stylish. And so I, I think that those things were deeply ingrained in the band and we were just never going to be the kind of artists that would go on stage wearing jeans and, and a T-shirt. Um, so, yes, we, we, we really care about the details we, we, with everything, with the artwork, um, the typefaces on the record, the the live performance and the presentation of the show... Um, obviously the clothes, the videos, uh, that's what Duran Duran's about. It starts with the music and then we can build everything else.
4: Because my next question was, what has driven the band all these years? What is it that connects all of you together?
3: Well, at the center of all of it is the music. There's no question. Uh, We're all big music fans and we love to create things together. So when we get into a studio um, and we plug in, that electricity that we create uh, we 've stuck together and, and we, we know the strength we have as a unit, uh, also friendship uh, respect um, and curiosity if you have to keep your curiosity if you 're making things I think you we, we always want to stay contemporary i 've got no real interest in starting to sound older. Right. Um, That's that's just us. Other artists pick a sound and they stick with it.
0: Great description of both the style and anti-style of the punk and new wave movement and the evolving sound of Duran Duran. So just when it looked like their heyday was over in the 80s, they came back with a number of hits in the 90s, like Come Undone and Ordinary World. Really good songs that kind of brought them back and really helped to establish a much longer term career than I think a lot of people, maybe including them, expected
1: yeah yeah good point point. and i think also nick rhodes made a really interesting point when he talked about the stylishness of the punk era because it's thought of as being anti-style or no style but in fact as he puts it it's absolutely driven by a look as well as the content of the music obviously yeah tom continuing on with marilyn's conversation with nick rhodes he tells her about what inspired him
4: i love when younger people come into your world and say how much they love the music uh, that you made, like Mark Ronson. And you work with him on this album, do you not?
3: Uh, We did work with Mark. Mark's just one track on this album we wrote and uh, recorded with him. Uh, He played guitar on it, actually. He said it's the most beautiful guitar part he's ever played on a record. Uh, Mark is an, an extraordinary artist, producer. He's got great taste, great style, but he really just knows how to zero in. It's all about editing for me, um, music and production. You've got to know when to make those decisions and and when to choose the right vocal and when to play the right melody and when to step out and leave the space in the music. And, and Mark is exceptionally good at that.
4: And such a big fan too.
3: Yeah, I, I with us, when he first worked with us some 10, 15 years ago now, uh, we were all astounded that... He knew everything about all of our tracks, even the more obscure things, things that were on B-sides of 12-inch records. He said, oh, can we do something that's more like that? We were all thinking, wait a minute, how did that go? Can you just play it to us for a minute?
4: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And and, him being such a big fan, you and your, you know, like you said, start out at 18, big fans of Bowie, Roxy Music. Were you able to share time with David Bowie? Uh, you know, with Brian Eno, were, and, and were you kind of in the back of your mind going, oh, I cannot believe I'm speaking with these people. What was that like for you?
2: Well,
3: uh, when I was 14, 15 years old, I had a, a poster of David Bowie on my wall and I had all the records and um, it was incredibly inspirational and um, and important to me. By the time I was... 19, David was one of my friends. Wow. So, yes, it was, without doubt, a very strange transition. But we were in a, uh, a very different world. We'd suddenly got catapulted from being kids who lived in a sort of housing, middle-class housing estate in, in, um, in Hollywood, Birmingham, to okay. uh, hanging out with David Bowie and Andy Warhol uh it was it was it was quite a big change <laughs> but but actually it was also um enormously uplifting and um, inspirational of course because these people had done so many things that that we loved mm-hmm. and and to understand a little bit more about them and, and how they'd made these things happen uh it was it was really great. And both of those people in particular gave us um, fantastic advice. They, they were they were nurturing and uh, and and helpful.
4: Do you uh, mind sharing what some of that advice was, Nick?
3: Uh, sure. Well, for example, um, Andy Warhol would always say, uh well, make sure you stick together. Make sure you you keep the name. Make sure that nobody interferes with what you're doing. Make sure that uh, you get as much press as possible. Uh, you don't have to read it. Just weigh it, um, okay. which always stuck with me. Yeah. Um, and David... Um, uh, we knew for a number of years and of course as an artist um, I think he he was the greatest of his generation he Mm -hmm. he pretty much owned the 1970s musically and and so whatever he said about music we were doing or what we were playing or encouraged us or made suggestions about producers or musicians that was always great Uh, He'd worked with Niall Rogers um, around the mm-hmm. same time as we first worked with him, 83, 84. Right. Uh, he'd done the album Let's Dance for David, and uh, and he'd had such a good time on that. He was the one that was saying, you really must do your next album with Niall. Don't just do a couple of tracks, do a whole album. So we did do the Notorious album with, with Niall. Not, not Notorious. That was
4: such a great Thanks. song. Um, and Nile in that documentary... Uh, you know he loves working with you, and it's so great to see that kind of uh, connection with everybody. It was so great to talk to you today. I'm such an honor to meet you, and we are really wanting to come to Canada to go on tour. I don't think anyone's going to sit down while Duran Duran is on stage.
3: Well, that's okay. We'll save the seats. Um, yeah, <laughs> we are we, there as soon as we can. Uh, yeah. Uh, Canada always been um, uh, a very important part of duran duran's uh, touring life and and we love the country and so yeah. as soon as we can be there we'll be there
0: great stuff about the influence of david bowie on duran duran and the influence of duran duran on mark ronson and how mark used that influence to help duran duran later that's wild a special thanks to marilyn dennis and her podcast which is simply called marilyn dennis does a podcast and the Marilyn Dennis Show on CTV. It was fun to help out a little bit on that interview, and we really appreciate Marilyn and her gang being so generous with that audio.
1: Still to come, a wonderful 1995 interview with Bonnie Raitt. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Joking. Now let's do a little time traveling back to the 1990s. I
2: can-
0: From 1991, one of the best songs of that decade, I Can't Make You Love Me, so wonderfully performed by Bonnie Raitt. And by the way, that was co-written by former NFL player Mike Reed.
1: Tom, there's only one Bonnie Raitt. No one sounds like her, plays guitar like her, or commands the stage the way she does, and she's been doing it since the early 70s. At first, with limited success, she kind of bounced from label to label, but eventually hit the top of the charts in the early 1990s. Now, Bonnie always had fans that came to her shows, no matter the venue. I saw her in those earlier days at Massey Hall, and it was a wonderful show. And as she often did, she brought an artist that she believed in to the forefront. In this case, it was an unknown by the name of Tom Waits. Wow. Yeah. Over the years, activism has been at the center of her career, and she's put her considerable artistic cachet behind causes that matter to her with a wonderful generosity of spirit. Upcoming tour dates with James Taylor, including Canadian shows, have unfortunately been postponed again. But I'm telling you, if you have a chance to see Bonnie Raitt in the future, do not miss it. Mm-hmm. In a 1994 conversation with Dale Smith, she talks about getting recognition for something she's been doing for a couple of decades over the course of 13 albums. Bonnie also expresses gratitude for her opportunity to play for more people, but still do it in a style that is artistically satisfying. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the interview, she incredibly down to earth, as you'll see, and very matter of fact about things like success survival, and the life of a working musician and recording artist. She also turns the spotlight on two artists who were very influential on her music
5: even though it is like a day off for you, it's not really a day off because I imagine you're trotting around to different radio stations and TV stations and doing No, the...
2: I don't do I don't do in, I usually make phoners, you know, for a couple of weeks in advance, so
5: Yeah. Right.
2: That you know, that to promote the shows you really have to have already done the interview way before you get there. It wouldn't do much good if you did it the same day.
5: Well, that's true. That is true. How how much do you put into that? I mean, is it is does it get on your nerves that you have to do so much extra work or are you the type that likes to put the album out and just say, There's the music, there's the you know
2: well, you know, if you want to be in the business, you got to do the thing that is necessary. If you believe in your work, you got to get it out there. But luckily, um, if you have a record company that cares about you and you have, are lucky enough to get some airplay, then um, you know, then it sort of takes care of it for you. And I've, I've been doing this for twenty-five years, so it's not like I'm unknown. But when the record comes out, you do a, pr- a certain number of interviews that. You know, sometimes that you do these wire services where you do one, and then it's picked up in hundreds of stations. But you guys have been so supportive, and I don't get up to Toronto very much, so it's been, you know, when they said, could you possibly talk to Daley He's a big fan, and I said, sure.
5: Well, we're looking forward to you coming into town. That's really great. The thing with you, you've got to please so many fans, because with your type of music, it cuts across a lot of different areas. I mean, it's not really pop, it's not country, it's kind of all over the place.
2: Yeah, well, I leave it up to them. If they like it, they'll come. If they don't, it's not going to bother me. Somebody's going to come.
5: <laughs> well you've got quite a quite a I don't know if it's a laid back lazy fair kind of attitude you find so many people li- these days in the business are so intense about everything yet you don't come across that way.
2: Gee, I don't know. I only know people that are, you know, do it cuz they love the music and I don't really care whether it has a hit record or not, but it's been wonderful the last few years to get all this airplay after all these years. So that part's wonderful cuz I can certainly put my band in better hotels and pay them what they deserve. <laughs> and it's wonderful to be appreciated across the board like i have been but if it goes back to more or less a cult following after this it would certainly wouldn't make me unhappy either as long as i don't have to give up my job
5: Does that catch you by surprise the success of uh, say nick of time when you first came really into the forefront
2: um well any time you get that kind of a hit you know like that it's a surprise but you yeah, know was a wonderful thing to happen
5: now when you uh, when you were making this album it was it's it's weird did you know when you were making the nick of time album that it was Maybe more of a i don't want to say pop oriented album, but that it was more accessible. Was it any different?
2: No, With- I think the albums are pretty much the same across the board. I just think the radio climate changed, and people uh, invented a c and a r and v h one and that's uh, those those uh, initials made a big difference, and I also switched record labels to people that cared about me as opposed to people that ignored me. so yeah, it was a good it was a it was a good bunch of songs. We had a really good combination of. Co-producing and engineering and and uh, band, but frankly the the musical style and the range that I do hasn't really changed since my first album thirteen albums ago. I just think the climate of radio changed, and we made a particularly I think a, a better record and but you know at the time I just go in the studio and do the best job I can each time i I don't worry about the outcome of it as much as I worry about whether I'm putting everything I can into it.
5: How did it feel when people, when you, when that first happened, that many people would say, "Oh, who's this? Who's this new Bonnie Raitt singer coming along?" That must oh, have felt. Oh, you helped.
2: know, I let them worry about that. I'm just doing my job, and if people like it, that's great. So, you know, it's been a long time since that first Grammy thing. So, it's it's been very lucky to have all three records received as well as they have, and I get to come up and play bigger places. And we're doing this new Molson Amphitheater, which I hear is great.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, very For a long nice. time. There
2: wasn't a. Um, an intermediate-sized place to play in Toronto. So, you know, we would play Massey Hall and um, different, different, you know, a lot of places in Canada, there's only two or 3,000 seaters or else you go to some big hockey arena. So this is going to be nice to do something in the middle.
5: Yeah, loading up the Sky Dome kind of thing, that's a bit big.
2: Yeah, not, not exactly conducive to intimacy.
5: No. And your, your shows are, are the type where you work best when you're close to the audience because you kinda can interplay with them a bit.
2: Um, you know, we play to 15,000 people a night, and it, to me, doesn't feel that much different than 3,000 seaters. It's just if you're in an acoustically weird-sounding hall, it's just hard for the audience, I think. So um, the, we tend to play these outdoor sheds in the summer because they just sound better, and they're more pleasant for people to be out under the stars, and, and uh, just kind of makes a real, I don't know, I mean, if you can't be in a, in a, a smoky blues club, which I prefer, personally is really rough on your voice and, and people tend to get really too rowdy to be able to listen for the ballads. It's, it's kind of a nice combination to be able to play outside if you're going to have a bigger following like we have in the last few years and I'm really glad to be able to get up there and play to the number of people that actually want to see us this time.
5: And with those smoky blues clubs you know half the time you end up playing behind chicken wire anyway so.
2: Well I don't know I don't think I ever got in that part I was more of a folk kind of an artist up there so I just um yeah, that whole thing about multiple sets late at night—everybody pays their dues on those for many, many years—and um, you know that's how people get their start. But as you get up there, it's really hard on your voice to be in, the, in that kind of smoky area. So it's nice for me to be outside.
5: Yeah. How, how is your voice these days? Do you find now that you're playing more more shows and in bigger arenas and such that it's more of a drain on your voice?
2: Well, I mean, a microphone's a microphone, whether you're playing to 50 people or 20,000. So mm-hmm. it's the same number of hours. Singing, but it's you know, that's basically what I do. I haven't had any trouble with my voice since the beginning. I'm very lucky that way.
6: Yeah, even
5: though the lifestyle you did, you had a little bit more of a rowdier lifestyle, shall we say, years ago than you do nowadays.
2: no well, I think probably 99% of the people in the record business, including radio, also have cooled their jets in terms of how many hours they stay up. So that just comes with age, I think. And if you're lucky, you can get out of it alive. If you're, alive, if you're not, you know, you end up suffering for it. And I was really a lucky one to be able to get the help that I needed at the time when the change was called for.
5: Well, we'll look forward to seeing you at the Molson Amphitheater, Bonnie.
2: Yeah, me too. And I've got a really great uh, uh, co-bill with me, Ruth Brown and Charles Brown, two of the major pioneers of rhythm and blues that uh, I've been championing them for a long time because, of course, they didn't get royalties. None of the artists that started out our kind of music really got treated correctly because people that recorded before 1970 never participated in their own record sales. Yeah. And these guys are not only fantastic form, and some of them are in their mid-60s, and Charles is in his mid-70s, and they're just absolutely knocking everybody out every night. So if you want to get a chance to see these people while they're still alive and pay a tribute to them, we're going to be doing some stuff together. and. Uh, they're just fantastic, so I couldn't recommend coming to see them more.
5: You did do a lot for them. That's a, a very nice way that you've paid these pioneers back because obviously you 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 know your your style is is uh, very reminiscent of theirs, and in in doing so by you bringing it into the mainstream, it's now finally paying off for them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, let's hope that everybody else will be uh, you know putting some of these artists on the bill because they're just as good as they always were. I don't want to be put out the pasture when I'm sixty-five any more than they did so um i'm hoping this will start a trend and people will take advantage of paying respect where it's due while these guys are still around to pay respect to
5: yeah good stuff bonnie
2: all right dale hey thanks a lot for coming in to do this and i'm really looking forward to getting up there again
0: there you go the wonderful bonnie rate a very straight shooter telling it like it is she's happy for the success from around that time but she says she would be unaffected if all the media love went away as long as she could still play music.
1: This is one case where I actually believe that rhetoric. Most yes. artists I think will say things like that but not mean it at all, but I really believe it coming from body rate.
0: I absolutely do, and like you said in the intro, She turns the spotlight on two artists who were really influential to her, uh, Charles Brown and Ruth Brown. And that was so wonderful what she said about seeing those artists while they're still around, you know. And there's, as we know, as we've, you know, experienced in the last few years, some of our favorite performers, we're losing them. And uh, and it is important to be able to see them uh, while we can, when we can. Good point. Up next, Tom's got something up his sleeve. Stick around to find out just what it is. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. So far, we've heard from Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran and Bonnie Raitt. Now, let's celebrate an R&B legend. From 1984, what a fun song. The Prince Song, I Feel For You by Shaka Khan.
1: Shaka Khan, alias Yvette Marie Stevens, has had an extraordinary career filled with ups and downs but studded with extraordinary accomplishments. Tom, she's won 10 Grammys, sold over 70 million records, and she's worked with Quincy Jones, Steve Winwood on Higher Love, Ray Charles, Prince, and Mary J. Blige, amongst so many others. But the most significant collaboration was likely the first big one, which she chronicles in this interview the interview starts with a great story of how stevie wonder got involved with rufus and how they picked a hit song that delivered a grammy to the band
7: well we were in the studio and i i'd expressed to our our producer robin monaco that maybe um our our (laughs) ex-producer that maybe we could um get a tune by some you know well-known artists that they had maybe in the can that we could redo maybe you know just you know, for the sake of doing a, 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 a so, main tune. Someone else's tune, yeah. yeah. And um, I said, I'd, I'd really love to do one of Stevie's songs because I, I admire him greatly. And so he says, yeah, I know some people at Motown. I know some of his producers, and I'll um, talk to them. So he did. He came back to the studio the next night and said, Stevie Wonder's coming, tomorrow, you know, tonight. Everybody said, mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. God, you know, God forbid, he walked in. Oh, and everybody, wow. we were freaked out, you know, everybody... I was eight and a half months pregnant. I just about had a baby, and on the spot, and everybody freaked out. <laughs> and laid down uh, about two or three tracks, and we picked the one we wanted.
6: And Then, oh, wow. then Rufus sized it. Then we redid it our way.
7: The first tune that he that, that he had played, you know, on the clavinet, you know, I didn't like it, so I said, "You have something else." They said, yeah, I got something. He said, what's your birth sign? I told him what my birth sign was. He said, well, I, I got something that's free, you know. I got what you want.
2: Tell me something good.
7: Mm-hmm. Tell, me, tell, me, tell me, tell me, that you love me,
0: yeah. That's Tell Me Something Good from 1974. Tell Fantastic song and great story from Shaka Khan, Love It.
1: Now, the one time I saw her was at the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame night honoring Joni Mitchell, and she arrived and sang Help Me and brought the house down. Here's a quote that Mm. she said about Joni. I'm drawn to her intelligence, number one. Her lyrics are off the chart. She's so honest and real, and she tells stories and paints pictures with her music. Nice description of Joni, huh?
0: Absolutely. Christopher, I saw that same show. We were in the same place many years before we got to know each other, and I loved it. Now, I was, you know, I didn't know the connection that Shaka had with Joni Mitchell. And so I was a little bit confused. And then she comes out and performs. She absolutely nailed it. And like you said, her performance of Help Me was so beautiful and so wonderful. And I've always liked her. You know, she was great in the 80s with her cover of the Prince song, I Feel For You. And also that wonderful soul song, Ain't Nobody, which stands up really well to this day. But boy, she hit it out of the park that night in Toronto, at the Songwriters Hall of Fame.
1: That's Shaka Khan on Famous Lost Words.
0: A few episodes ago, we had Jay Michaels from News Talk 1010 in Toronto join us for our special Beatles edition, and that was just a ton of fun. So I thought we'd bring Jay back for a game of Who Said It? What it is, it's going to be Christopher versus Jay. Guys, I'm going to give you a quote from a famous rock star... And I'm actually going to give you a choice of who said it. I'll give each of you a chance to answer it, okay? So, first of all, here's the first quote. Like millions of people in the world, I can't listen to Coldplay. Who said it? Was it Noel Gallagher or was it Chris Martin of Coldplay? Christopher?
1: I'm going to say Chris Martin. I'm going to agree with Chris.
0: Okay, you're both (laughs) right. (laughs)
1: No, no, would have been way nastier than that. Oh, for have, sure. It would have been unprintable.
0: So you replace
3: Coldplay with Phil Collins and you've got Noel.
0: <laughs> oh, my
3: <laughs> God. Hated Phil Collins. So,
0: oh, man. Some of the quotes, you know what? I'm not even going to get into it. But some of the things he said about Phil were just terrible. OK, here's another quote. Who said this? Being sober on a tour bus is like totally different than being drunk on a tour bus. Is that Chad <laughs> Kruger or Ozzy Osbourne?
3: It's Ozzy
1: awkward. Ozzy all the way.
0: Okay, you're both right on that. Okay.
1: I know Chad, and he's never been
3: sober. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be fine with me saying that.
2: Oh, good. Okay.
0: All right. Who said this? Six months go by very quickly when you're a genius. Is that Robert Plant or Kanye
3: West? Kanye West.
1: Kanye.
0: Wrong, wrong, wrong. It was Robert Plant.
3: Wow. (laughs) That does not sound like Robert Plant at all. Well,
1: maybe tongue firmly planted in cheek.
0: It could be. It could be. I think so. I love it. Okay, this is Famous Lost Words. We're playing something called Who Said It? No options for this one. We will accept the first correct answer, okay? So you will have to shout out the answer. I'm not giving you an option on this one. Just because I cut the heads off of dolls doesn't mean I hate babies. I just hate dolls. Alice Cooper. (laughs) Jay got that one. Uh,
1: (laughs) I'm still inhaling. It's not fair.
5: (laughs) Sorry.
0: Okay. Who said this? I think record companies are criminals. Was it George Michael or John Bon Jovi?
5: George Michael.
1: George Michael.
0: Wrong both of you it was John Bon Jovi they put out an album guys it was their last album for for their former record company and this is about four years ago and truly it is a hideous album even
1: I'm really compared, surprised at
0: that yeah <laughs> 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 even in terms of Bon Jovi's output this was bad okay anyway so I think that's probably around the time where that came from okay who said this I'm not a woman, I'm a force of nature. Madonna or Courtney Love?
1: Oh, well, I think that could be either, Chris. It
0: really could. Let's go with
1: Madonna. Uh, I'll go with Courtney, just to be contrary.
0: Okay, Jay got it right. It's Courtney Love. <clears throat> All right. All right, and who said this? When I die, sprinkle my ashes over the 80s. Was it Tiffany <laughs> or David Lee Roth?
1: Got to be David Lee Roth. I'm going to say Tiffany, just to be a contrarian.
0: Okay, Jay gets that one. It was David Lee Roth. Okay, who said this? Kiss is like a smell in a paper bag. They just never go away. Was it D. <laughs> Snyder of Twisted Sister or was it Elvis Costello? Well, first, I love how Tom gets a kiss reference in every podcast. <laughs> yeah, at least
1: one. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to go with Elvis Costello.
0: Christopher? What was the other option?
1: Somebody mm-hmm. from Twisted Sister?
0: Yeah, D. Snyder.
1: I'll pick D. Snyder.
0: All right, Christopher gets that one. And this is our last one. He's rude, arrogant, intimidating, and lazy. The angriest man you'll ever meet. He's like a man with a fork in a world of soup. (laughs) What's that Noel Gallagher talking about his brother Liam or Peter Hook of New Order talking about Bernard Sumner?
1: I'm going to say Peter Hook. Yeah, it feels like Peter Hook to me too.
0: No, it was Noel Gallagher. He's like a man with a fork in a world full of soup. I love that quote.
1: That's more Noel Coward than Noel Gallagher. Yeah. I think so.
0: <laughs> very good. Well, I hate to choose a winner, but Jay took that one, but it was very close. So close.
1: So close. <laughs> so close.
0: Thanks yeah. for joining us, Jay Michaels.
1: Thanks, guys. That does it for this week. Don't forget, coming up in two weeks, our season seven finale, which is also our 100th episode. We will feature some of our favorite stories from the show.
0: That's right. Like Christopher's epic dinner with Robert Plant, Mike Myers, Alana Miles, and Don Rickles? (laughs) That was Led Zeppelin, right?
1: (laughs) And that time when Tom danced like a whirling dervish in front of Eddie Van Halen and Valerie Bertinelli. Okay, Mm
0: -hmm. okay. Do we have to rerun that particular clip? I'm just wondering. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Okay, or (laughs) that time that a Canadian singer scared the heck out of a music industry legend, but managed to get a record contract from that encounter anyway. Or the story of how the bare naked Ladies made the cheapest music video that we've ever
1: aired on MuchMusic.
0: We also have some previously unaired stories that you have to hear to
1: believe. Now, while you're waiting for this special episode, you can get caught up on the previous 99 shows on the iHeartRadio app or any other podcast platform.
0: All right. As promised, here are Christopher's thoughts about the life and career of Mike Nesmith, followed by a fantastic 1989 interview with Roger Ashby and the late Peter Tork of The Monkees.
1: Michael Nesmith was a man of many accomplishments, best known, of course, by far as a member of the Monkees, but Nesmith's pursuits, musical and otherwise, ranged far and wide. After the Monkees split for the first time, he jumped into his solo career, forming the first national band. Now, the sound of that group in many ways forecast the country rock movement that followed soon afterwards, and it was a regret of Nesmith's that bands like Poco, the Flying Burrito Brothers, and of course... The Eagles received the credit for that movement. Now, if you're curious about the first national band, their biggest hit, Joanne, is a good place to start. Michael Nesmith was also in on the ground floor of music video, winning the first Grammy Award for an extended piece called Elephant Parts. And he proposed to Warner the concept of a music video network that gave way to MTV and I'm glad he did. He also produced videos for Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson, and others. His series Television Parts featured performances by, at the time, unknowns like Jerry Seinfeld, Whoopi Goldberg, Jay Leno, etc. His company, Pacific Arts, was a pioneer in home video, but crashed over a dispute with PBS. Now, After being awarded almost $50 million in court, Nesmith's famous quote was, It's like finding your grandmother stealing your stereo. You're happy to get your stereo back, but it's sad to find out your grandmother's a thief. Nesmith's songs were recorded by the Monkees and formed the heart of the first national band's catalog, along with some unusual covers. Check out the latter's version of the country classic, Tumble and Tumbleweeds. Nesmith's greatest accomplishment as a songwriter may be for a song that he was told wasn't right for the Monkees. Well, it was right for Linda Ronstadt and her band The Stone Ponies, the song Different Drum was her first hit. Nesmith was at times ambivalent about the Monkees' success, to say the least, and he spearheaded a separation from their producers, who had made most of the creative decisions for the group up until then. At a press conference to promote the album Headquarters, Nesmith referred to the album More of the Monkees as, quote, probably the worst record in the history of the world, unquote. Dire post-ban financial circumstances were relieved with an inheritance from his mother's estate. She was the inventor of liquid paper. Michael Nesmith gave his final performance as a member of the Monkees with Mickey Dolenz at the Greek Theater in November of 2021.
0: Great sentiments, Christopher. Michael Nesmith died less than 4 weeks after that last show on the Monkees farewell tour in November. And bandmate Mickey Dolenz was devastated at the loss, as you can imagine. On Twitter, Mickey wrote, I am heartbroken. I've lost a dear friend and partner. I'm so grateful that we could spend the last couple of months together doing what we loved best, singing, laughing, and doing shtick. I miss it all so much, especially the shtick. Rest in peace, Nez. All my love, Mickey. And he also posted a picture of him and Michael embracing on stage, after that final concert. Michael Nesmith died of natural causes at the age of 78. Okay, so what we have now is a really wonderful 1989 interview with another late Monkees bandmate, Peter Tork, who passed away in 2019. Just keep in mind that we recorded this segment a few months after Peter's passing and several months before Mike Nesmith's death.
2: Then I saw her face Now I'm a big
0: I heard a trace, out in my mind. The Monkees and their biggest hit, "I'm a Believer." Were you a believer, Tom? Honestly. Well, I certainly was. With some of those songs, <laughs> boy, "I'm a Believer," "Pleasant Valley Sunday," uh, "Daydream Believer." Man, those were great songs. Not your stepping stone, boy. They they were yep. great songs.
1: The interview we have today is from around 1989-90, and it's truly fascinating. Here is a guy who made a living is kind of a clown, but who was also the most accomplished musician in The Monkees, playing guitar, bass, keyboards, French horn, and banjo. Wow. And as you will hear in this interview, he was a thoughtful man with a variety of interests and a very subtle sense of humor. We all know The Monkees' story, the wildly successful Emmy award-winning TV show that ran from 1966 to 68, when the millions of records sold, but with the disclaimer that the band members didn't play on their records didn't write their own songs, and weren't, in fact, a real band. Right. Having been assembled through an audition process, that was the rap. But their fans at the time did not care. And the fans who came to reunion shows throughout the years were as dedicated as ever, remembering the antics of the Prefab 4, Mickey Dolenz, Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith, and Peter Tork. And, of course, they also remember that collection of killer hit songs we refer to. Right. In a wonderful interview with Roger Ashby, Peter talks about who goes to a monkey show.
8: I got a trivia question for you. <laughs> okay. Which Which television show, when it was taken off the air, received more complaints than any other in the history of television shows? Um, 1960- Laugh-In. Not Laugh-In, no. It was uh, 1968. Um, it's a tough one. This is your life. Not, not. This is your life. Uh, not. I love Lucy. Not the Ed Sullivan Show. I give up. The monkeys. No kidding. Yeah, that's a fact. I had no idea. <laughs> I often ask that question. No, <laughs> how it takes a long time because people never figure that's going to be the answer.
6: Goodness gracious!
8: Did you not know that? No, I didn't. Really?
6: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could tell because I mean, you asked me that question. I, I could. I could.
8: You, know you it. saw it coming. Yes. Yeah. What, what network were you on? NBC? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. See. Okay. Um, when you look out into the audience now, 23 years later, you must see an entirely different makeup in, uh, of people.
6: Yeah, well, they go in for different shades nowadays. Uh, they used to go in for uh, raging red, and now it's the subtler colors, the, the gentler blushes, a little more orange in the
8: tone. <laughs> I'm getting at the wider demographic you must see out there.
6: Um, well, <laughs> that's not all that's wider among our audience. <laughs> uh, but certainly the demographic is wide enough. The... Um, uh, we are seeing kids, uh, eight and nine years old. They must be going to their first show and they look up and they wonder what the heck is going on yeah. all the way up through, uh, subteens and teens and late teens and early twenties and on up, all the way up. I mean, we have, uh, one woman came to the gate at a television station. We were doing a live show and she was out of the fence afterwards. She was bent over and hobbled and gray and wrinkled. She must've been 70 years old. She wanted our autograph. It was the most astounding thing I've ever seen happen in my life.
8: Isn't that great, though? It's nice to know you appeal to a wide audience. I mean, we always feel that on the radio anyway.
6: Yeah, it, it does have its... Uh, we, yeah, this, it is a lot of fun. Um, we're very glad about the breadth of the audience. Uh, the In the 60s, it was like 99% uh, uh, girls. I remember... Uh, um, in the audience and seeing some disgruntled guy having to bring his date with him and like you know with his arm folded in a complete show me attitude yeah and um <clears throat> i remember uh nowadays it's uh, uh much more must be 45 percent guys and uh, uh the uh, you know an ethnic of a wider variety of mm-hmm. the, you know sprinkling of black faces where before there were absolutely none uh, those kinds of changes, I think, are really wonderful. they they very encouraging about the uh, uh, the strength of the monkeys phenomenon, the, the breadth of the appeal.
8: I can remember that it wasn't cool for the guys to admit that they liked the monkeys, but the girls, uh, you know, the, they they said they did. But I think, think secretly, and I know I did, I bought the albums and I watched the TV show, too.
6: Yeah, well, I, it's it has to do, you could watch the TV show in relative security, Yeah, <laughs> um, which meant that the appeal would come along, um, you'd get some more appeal that way. That was lovely, yeah, and I really am glad to see you know guys coming out and enjoying the show and you know holding up their hands for high fives at the end. That kind of thing's a lot of fun.
0: Oh wow! Remember when I first sent you this interview just a few weeks ago and how psyched I was by how yeah, you good I was surprised how good <laughs> Peter Torque is in this interview. He's so unusual. He's got such a weird sense of humor. He's esoteric. He's philosophical. He's good natured. This is fantastic.
1: Yeah, he really is.
0: He talks about something that he knows
1: a lot about, the power of television, with a little 60s philosophy thrown in for good measure.
8: How do you explain this continued phenomenon, not only of of the monkey's music, but of the whole 60s thing in general?
6: Um, I feel like you're asking me for uh, uh, a kind of sociological treatise here that I'm probably... Less equipped to give than anything else.
8: Well, I think I am asking you that, and I I think you may be more equipped than you think you are because you were a part of it back then, and you've seen it continue into the the '90s now. Like, what what is the continued fascination? Why? I I can see on one hand that maybe the the baby boomers who were around in those days uh, remember you fondly, you know, and it's nostalgic and everything. But then, how do you explain the younger audience?
6: Well, I think basically you just have to give it credit uh, to the power of television to bring individual personalities to the fore. When you spend a half an hour on the television watching people uh, interact and, and play games and do jokes with each other, you really get a whole different uh, view of, of, of matters uh, than you do when it's just a, a band of uh, musicians uh, uh posturing and without any individual um uh, interaction. So I think really that 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 may have the most to do with it. The other things that I think about of course I was a uh I believe in the in the uh the, the 60s and Woodstock and all the rest of it I was reading the uh in the paper the other day you know that uh, that uh, the people are saying, oh, this, the Woodstock was just an, uh, an aberration of people with too much money and little reality set in and everything, then, you know, you really get the real stuff coming down. And I think it may be true that um, uh, it was a little premature uh, from the point of view of the kinds of life that we that we really have to lead and the kinds of things that we have to take care of first. But I think that uh, Woodstock and the the 60s generation is the way that it, uh, it should and, in fact, has to go, um, I'm a firm, firm believer that uh, if we don't uh, practice some of these uh, Aquarian Age, New Age principles, that the cosmos, the entire world, could come collapsing down in on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, Jesus' message was not just some uh, high uh, high moral value, but I think it was uh, quite crucial. It's like, you know, you can only ignore reality for so long before it comes up and smacks you in the face.
8: Well, it was certainly a fun time, and if nothing else, it's an escape for people, I think.
6: There's certainly that. If, if all else fails, uh, and I that would if that was the most that happened, that would be enough. Of course, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I just like to think that maybe, you know, for instance, here's a, a, a an interesting thing, uh, something that is uh, generally overlooked. The monkeys was the first, and to this date still, maybe the only situation comedy without, uh, you know, featuring youngish people without a authority figure.
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point.
6: <clears throat> so that uh, for the first time you had a situation where uh, Daddy didn't rule the roost, Yeah, but the kids did it on their own, or the, the, the young adults, you know, there's, mm-hmm. this, there's this age level. Um, presumably we were in our late teens or early 20s, and uh, we were able to uh, call on our internal resources to deal with the, the life situation. And I think that that may, you know, it's. It, I think that the, the pre-Aquarian age is about... Uh, authority figures, and that seems to be what an awful lot of the nation uh, and the world wants and needs, but I think that it's time to abandon that. and I think that the authority figure, the day of the authority figure, may be uh, on the wane.
0: Right. The hippie ideals continue to thrive, and he throws in a little bit of Christianity in there. Also, I really like this. Talking about the appeal of the monkey show, that it was young people starring in a show without any adult supervision, kind of like you and I right now, and it, which in a way <laughs> is a very counterculture vibe. So even though it was kind of harmless fun, it was there was a little bit of radicalness to the whole concept. And man, did I like that show when it was out.
1: But it was kind of son of Hard Day's Night. Right. Yeah. In almost every way for me. Excellent. Hence the term, the the prefab for. Yeah. And of course uh, that. I mean, I guess there were always people in Hard Day's Night, um, you know, like the television producer or the guy on the train who were sort of trying to be uh, adults to the Beatles' craziness. But. Basically, it was the same premise, I think.
0: And of course, we can't forget that the monkeys' TV show got a revival when it was re-aired on MTV many years later. And so yeah, they became yeah. famous all over again, and that was great for them, for sure.
1: Roger asks an intriguing question about what endures in pop music.
8: Getting back to the music for a minute, I I find it interesting that a lot of the more progressive, heady kind of uh, underground, avant-garde, state-of-the-art, leading-edge kind of music of the late 60s, early 70s has largely been forgotten because it sounds more dated than a lot of the 60s pop, such as your own music.
6: I think you're right. I I think that uh, I... uh... I think there's something to that as a general rule of, of, of thumb. Uh, obviously, uh, um, the uh, uh, I think that when you talk about work of real quality, uh, it doesn't matter too much. I think uh, David Bowie was always kind of avant-garde, and I think that some of his stuff stands up as well as anything that ever did. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Beatles, it, in their leading edge, stand up very well, but only because what they were doing was... Rooted absolutely firmly in the ground of good, solid uh, mm-hmm. pop virtues, um, I think, uh, and and you know, to me, the, uh, uh, this is reflected in uh, the music of the uh, the composer I love the best, uh, Johann Bach, who was regarded as an old fuddy-duddy in his own day. Did you know that, as, mm-hmm. a, as a composer? No. Uh, and yet uh, he's, uh, his work has endured, and I think it's because it, it uh, was rooted firmly in the principles of music musical virtue, and he stood on the shoulders of giants.
0: There you go. Some great pop music that he's talking about, and then he starts talking about Johann Sebastian Bach. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, Don Kirshner is likely becoming... A somewhat obscure
1: reference in music trivia, but he was a kingmaker in the 60s right up to the 80s, developing talents like Carole King, Paul Simon, Bobby Darin, and many others, as well as launching Don Kirshner's Rock Concert, right. a live performance TV show that ran from 73 all the way to 81, which coincidentally was the year that MTV arrived mm-hmm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. He was the wooden, often mocked host. Do you remember him? <laughs> Do it. I remember the first time I saw Tom Jokic. <laughs> you know, that whole shit. <laughs> <trick. laughs> it was in a basement in Toronto. Well, but he had a, anyway, he had a great run yes. and ended up, you ready for this? He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
0: Yeah, but the guess who isn't? Come on. The
1: guess who are not, <laughs> Don Kirchner's, yeah, I knew we were going there. <laughs> Many consider his greatest work, his oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> wow was with the monkeys, choosing right. the songs that they featured in uh, their weekly show. Peter Tork has something to say about
8: Kirchner. If I mentioned the name Don Kirchner, well, how would you respond?
6: Don Kirchner, Well, yes. Don Kirshner uh, deserves all kinds of credit, and i, I usually start off with that uh, uh, or at least to make sure that that's understood that Don mm-hmm. Kirchner's uh, ear, was directly responsible for the monkeys uh, musical success it was his ear who said this is the single this is the record this is the cut this is the artist this is the vocal approach this is the production he did all that uh... he didn't do any of the actual producing himself but he knew who to call on and why and when and i in fact i think the monkeys may be, uh... his personal uh... peak as a as a entrepreneur you know, musical entrepreneur um, don Kirshner. uh... One of the things about Don that he didn't know at the time was uh, that uh, when he said, the kids will love this tune, what he was actually saying is, I love this tune because I'm a kid at heart. But he was never able to admit that he was a kid at heart, and that is what I think finally brought him down. Uh, he uh, ran afoul of a, of a political power structure, which he didn't need to do. Uh, the, um, you may know that uh, the monkeys, uh, the individual guys, requested... Uh, some uh, some freedom on their records. Mm-hmm. What you probably don't know is that the entire sum total of the monkeys' request was that we be allowed to be the sidemen on our own records. We said to Donnie, we want you to go on picking the tunes. We want you to go on picking the producers. Just let us be the studio musicians. Right. And, uh, and he couldn't stand it. He just couldn't handle it. He could not cope with what he saw to be a... Uh, a destructive challenge to his—I uh, don't know what—his artistic, his personal integrity. I don't know what he was afraid of, but he couldn't handle it, and he just went off the deep end be- about it. Because it,
8: it wasn't his idea, you mean, or what?
6: I can't—I can't tell you that. I just know that when—when uh, when we said, you know, okay, well, uh, the monkeys have to be the side men on at least the B side of their own next single, uh, he said, "Oh no, no, no! I'm putting out this record the way I want to put out records. You guys can't have it. I'm doing this. You'll show you." And he put out a record in Canada. Which uh, you know, you and and your some of your uh, listeners may have, and it had a little bit me, a little bit you on one side, and she hangs out on the other, mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, that's what caused Don Kirshen to lose his job because he was at that time under direct orders from his superiors not to do that, uh, and he thought that by releasing it in Canada he could be insubordinate and and still like end uh, run the situation, and he lost his job instantly on the spot. And we, in America, and I don't know, and the record was instantly withdrawn, and uh, uh, we put out in, uh, in America, I think it was a little bit, a little bit too on the A side, with The Girl I Knew Somewhere on the B side, which was a Mike Nesmith tune that we recorded in the studio. Just Mickey on drums and me actually on harpsichord. Hmm. Um, and that was the first tune that we put out ourselves with, our own, uh, uh, with ourselves as sidemen. Uh, and it's not great uh, if from some points of view although there's a lot of interest in it and um and it's a good kind of early pop cut from a, a young garage band as was all of the headquarters album for my money mm-hmm. listen to that album you say not bad for a first uh, album by a young band I, I mean sounds like a band of 16 year olds but uh you know, it still has uh, has imagination and humor and, and some confidence and uh, I think that uh, I think that we should have worked with Donnie and I wish he had been able to, uh, to handle it because I think that we could have gone on to make uh, some fabulous records among us.
0: Oh my. So Peter is both loving and damning in his assessment of Don Kirshner. They did have musical skills. They simply wanted to play on their own records, even if it was just the B side of singles. And Don Kirshner saw this as such an outrage that he refused to do it. And it actually cost him and in the long run it cost them as well.
1: It's quite a story and one that I never knew, that's Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. And then the talk turned to his more immediate plans.
6: Are you having fun these days? Yes, I am. Thanks very much for asking. Uh, I enjoy myself hugely on stage. I usually spend about half of it uh, picking on somebody in the audience. Um, some, Some person will walk in there. You don't know how much fun they're having, but one person will have a kind of a glum look on her face and I'll be writing or are you sure you're having fun? Giving <laughs> her yeah. a hard time all night long, <laughs> and uh, making them sing, and, and you know generally uh, goofing off with the other guys and uh, uh, doing bits. There's a we do a D.W. Washburn tune, and uh, mm-hmm. that uh, in which I suddenly get extremely drunk, and <laughs> start staggering around the stage, which is funny because I don't drink at all these days, it's just, <laughs> but I have a good time acting drunk.
8: So what else are you doing? What's in the future for you then? You won't be doing this forever and ever. What, uh... I have
6: eyes to be a rock and roll performer. I've got, uh, I, have, I know the kind of music I want to do, and, it, and I know what makes me the happiest now. It's, it's interesting. It's taken me all this time to figure that out. But I've, I finally got it, and now I'm going to go about making it happen to the best of my ability.
8: Well, we wish you the best of luck in that, and we look forward to seeing you when you play next week. Thanks very much.
0: There you go. Great stuff. Roger Ashby in conversation with Peter Tork. What a great conversation. I was so thrilled. I actually called Roger up right away and told him that he had this interview, and he was thrilled for the fact that it still existed because some of the interviews, you know, we were having trouble finding them, and so it was a real thrill to find it and to play it for you. Peter Tork of The Monkees on Famous Lost Words.